So today we're in Acts chapter 24. If you have a Bible in front of you today, it would be great if you could open up. So Acts chapter 24. The words will be on the screen also. We've been looking at Paul through Romans over the past few weeks and months, and now we see something that happened in his life, a narrative in his journey in through Acts, and we're focusing in on this specific chapter in chapter 24. We'll read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Acts 24, this is God's word. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to them to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Thereafter, several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here for you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out of standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. 
At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by God. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. That's um, our reading today. And we will, before we come to God's word um, being preached, we will hear from the band and he will lead us in singing an army of ordinary people. If you can stand and sing. Before I bring God's word to you, I'll just pray. Father, as I read from your word, um, remind me that it's not what I say, Lord, but what you say through me. It's your word that is important. It's your word that we stand on. Father, take away nerves um, and take away anything unhelpful I may say, so that we learn something new about your glorious character, Lord, and go on our way rejoicing. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder if anyone here today has seen the 1993 classic Groundhog Day. If you haven't, in short, Groundhog Day is a film about a weatherman in America who is stuck reliving the same day over and over again, with the same events occurring on this day time and time again being stuck in this awful time loop of a repeated day. Now, from chapter 22 in Acts until now, and for the following two chapters after our chapter today, Paul seems to be reliving similar situations all of the time, an almost groundhog day stream of events. In our chapter today, we see Paul on trial before Governor Felix, the governor of Judea at the time, And in chapters 22 and 23, he was on trial before the crowd in Jerusalem and before the Sanhedrin, who were like all the top rabbis and all the elders of Jerusalem at the time. And in the next two chapters, which we don't have time for today, that might be, uh, (laughs) you might be relieved to hear that, uh, he uh, appears before another governor and a king. To say he's being put through the paces would be a bit of an understatement. In all, in, in all of the trials so far, he hasn't actually been um, found guilty of any serious crime. He's been accused of all sorts of serious crimes in the eyes of Jewish and Roman, uh, Jewish and Roman law. And it even tells us in chapter 23 that they were so angry at Paul that there was a plot to kill him from the Jews. And here in our chapter before us, the accuser is a man called Tertullus, which to me sounds a bit like some sort of Italian pasta or Italian dish. But in fact, he's a well-seasoned lawyer and a spokesperson. Now let's dig into the text to see what he has to say against Paul. Now I want us to see in this chapter, through Paul's example, what Christian testimony looks like. And what we as Christ testifiers 
can expect from the unbelieving world and to also see a clear example of God's sovereignty. So let's dig into the text. I'll read, it again. I'll read um, part of it again just so we can remind ourselves of the, the part of the text that I'm going to read from. So if you're taking notes today, the, uh, the title of this section is Tertullus' Deceit and Accusations. Tertullus' Deceit and Accusations. And we'll just read the first nine verses quickly again. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesperson, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to heed us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So Tertullus begins his accusations as any good lawyer would by buttering up the judge, or in this case, the governor Felix, attempting to get into his good books, almost like when you were a child and you really wanted that new toy, so you do a few extra chores for mum and dad to better your chances. Read with me in verse 2 how almost nauseating this flattery is. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Tertullus tells Felix that all the people have enjoyed this great period of peace, and sanctions have been beneficial. And he's grateful for them, which in reality is false, as Felix actually had one of the least peaceful terms of any Roman administrator up until this point. He was hated by the Jews, and he was known for taking bribes rather than upstanding governance. And the three charges against Paul, we can see in verses 5 and 6, that he was a troublemaker who stirs up riots. He was a ringleader of a Nazarene sect, which translates to Christianity. And he was an attempted desecrator of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, friends, it's important to note here that these aren't Mickey Mouse charges against Paul. He's being accused of threatening the peace against a Roman regime that dealt very harshly against uprisings of manic religious leaders. And he's being accused of desecrating the temple, which in that time was punishable by death. At the end of this section, Tertullus con concludes his prosecution with a direct appeal to Felix. To examine him yourself, in verse 8, he asks the governor. Hoping that if the governor, the top dog, can find fault in Paul, then it is curtains for him. It's all over. He would be finished. He had the Jews on his side in verse 9 as they joined in affirmation. 
And this was his play to finish Paul off. Now let's see how that works in the next section. So my second title today is Paul's Honest Defense and His Defining Belief. Paul's Honest Defense and His Defining Belief. Read with me from verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that which now they bring up against me. By this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains in to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and, pre and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, I cried out, standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, just like in any court of law, the focus changes from the accuser to the accused. And Paul gets his chance to defend himself. He gets the nod to speak from the governor in verse 10, and he proceeds with his defense. Now, friends, look at the comparison between the way Tertullus addressed the governor and the way Paul does. Second half of verse 10, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. It's so interesting to see this comparison. Tertullus's address is filled with impressive language, with flattery, where Paul, very in line with his character throughout the whole of the New Testament, as we've seen somewhat in Romans, is brief, honest, and straight to the point. While Tertullus makes his stance on flattery and empty compliments, Paul makes his stance on the solid ground of the gospel, which is why he can cheerfully make his defense. Friends, what a refreshing response. Here we have Paul in the midst of this crowd that want him dead, that want him defeated, that want him gone, saying that he cheerfully makes his defense. What an example! Paul is in the face of such mighty opposition and he can stand on the gospel with joy as he knows that it is solid ground. He does not stand on the unsteady ground of flattery and lies, but instead on the truth of the gospel. What a reminder for us today as people who make their defense on such ground. Let's together in, all, in our own defense and pursuit of godly lives make our stand on the gospel and do so cheerfully. Now into the next few verses, I think he mentions the 12 days in verse 11 to show Felix how ridiculous the accusation of him being a riot starter and a troublemaker was. 12 days would never be enough time for even the most charismatic of leaders to stir up serious uproar and distress. 
And in 12 and 13, he simply goes on to say how nobody could testify against him because nobody found him guilty of disputing with anyone or rousing up a crowd. But the following verses is where the rubber really starts to hit the road when we see what true Christian testimony looks like. Read with me in verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Firstly, again, let's consider the situation that Paul is in here. Paul, the man Paul is speaking to, has the literal power of life and death over him. If he finds Paul guilty, he has the authority to execute, to kill, to imprison him. He can do whatever he likes to this man. Yet Paul is cheerfully and unashamedly telling him the gospel. With many important Jewish elders and Roman authorities watching on, he doesn't even second guess. He puts his hope in God as his deliverer, not the governor. Friends, in reading this for preparing this sermon, I was humbled to my core. Here we have Paul in a worldly sense, a baby mouse in a snake pit. All the odds against him, Roman and Jew alike, wanting him gone, wanting him stopped. He was a lone ranger in a room full of enemies. Yet he still proudly and unashamedly tells them of his hope. Here's Paul in front of a man who could literally kill him for saying the wrong thing. Telling him the good news. And yet time and time again I find myself getting cold feet and weak knees when it comes to sharing the gospel with those around me. And I'm sure many of you here today can relate to my struggle. Paul goes on to show that he is not some innovator or radical idealist, yet a Christian who was a faithful Jew. Just like Jews, he he says in verse 14 to 16, he worships the God of our fathers. He believes in the law and in the prophets. He shares in the same hope, a resurrection. And he cherishes the same ambition, a clear conscience. So why are these Jews and, and Romans getting so wound up about Paul. What's the point of difference here? And it's the word that is repeated twice in this little section, the resurrection. The resurrection. The real reason for their antagonism and opposition against Paul and the reason why he is now on trial has to do with the resurrection. Although verse 15, they share in the same hope of resurrection, they differ in their understanding of how it is fulfilled. Paul sees it fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and the Jews do not. And this is the cause of all Paul's opposition in the chapter surrounding this one. This is his defining belief. We see it in chapter 23, verse 6, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And he repeats that same thing at the end of verse 21, as we've read already. 
Paul is constantly berated and continuously pursued by opposition because he believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And through his resurrection, there will be a final resurrection that includes the just and the unjust. A final resurrection where a final judgment will take place. This is a truth that Paul has already stood firmly on in chapter 17, speaking to the the Areopagus. He says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because of Christ's resurrection, Paul can have complete assurance in the resurrection to come of the just and the unjust. But it is also the truth that he can hold fast to amidst his struggle. I'll say that again. This hope in the resurrection is the reason for Paul's suffering, but it is also the truth that he can hold fast to amidst his struggle. Knowing that what he says and what he does in this life will directly affect his life to come. Paul locks his eyes to eternity. This is why we don't see him being downtrodden or feeling sorry for himself here. We simply see a follower of Christ having his ultimate hope on his future resurrection, which is guaranteed, guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, this truth alone is enough for us to be confident in our own sharing of the gospel. That no matter what humiliation, no matter what opposition, no matter what hurt we may experience, we can have perfect hope in Jesus that we as believers will be resurrected on that day and live with him forever. Isn't that incredible? And this is why the resurrection of Jesus has to be at the very heart of our Christian message. It is such good news. And in the end of this little section, verses 17 to 21, um, we see Paul addressing the third accusation of Tertullus, which was that he attempted to desecrate the temple. And Paul concludes his defense by once again asserting his innocence and declaring his hope in the future resurrection. He challenges Ananias and the other Jewish elders to speak and explain what Paul has done in violation of Jewish customs, as he has done nothing wrong. And Paul recognizes in verse 21, which we've covered already, that this conflict has nothing to do with Rome and its peace, but has everything to do with those who believe the gospel and those who reject it. Which brings us to our final point today. We've had Tertullus' deceit and his accusations. We've had Paul's honest defense and his defining belief. And we have verses 22 to 27, Felix's decision and God's sovereignty. Felix's decision and God's sovereignty. Read with me verse 22 to the end. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, 
And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Potius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It's interesting here that when Luke wrote Acts, he included that Felix had a working knowledge of Christianity. Maybe it was to show the successful spread of the gospel that had even reached this top Roman official. Or possibly through his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew. We don't know. But anyway, we know that he wasn't a stranger to the way. Felix delays his decision and says he will decide the outcome when Lysias the tribune comes. Paul is kept in custody, but due to his Roman citizenship, he's granted some liberties and can still see his friends. But again in verse 24, we see through Paul a stellar example of Christian testimony and witness. Read with me. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Again, being in the hands of this man, Felix, who could sentence him to serious prison time or even death, he does not hesitate to tell them about the good news of Jesus. Again, what an example. Friends, let's proclaim this gospel with courage. It is good news. Through the power of God, it can truly transform hearts and lives. So let's not shy away from the opportunities that are presented to us in our day-to-day lives to share this great gospel. In work or school or university, wherever you are, the next time a topic of religion or philosophy comes up, and you might think that's crazy, but all the places I've worked so far, they seem to come up all the time these sort of subjects, you wouldn't believe how much it is talked about. Tell them about the good news. Tell them about Jesus. Don't be ashamed of it. It is the truth. We should never be ashamed of the truth. And this is our mission as Christians. And verse 25 shows Felix and his fear of coming judgment as he was alarmed and he dismissed Paul. And rather than repenting of his sin and turning to Jesus, he lives in hope of a financial bribe rather than eternal salvation. How tragic is that? Instead of turning to Jesus through the message of Paul, he relies on a financial bribe. Friends, Acts is a book full of miraculous conversion stories. You'll know Pentecost and the the thousands of people that came to save in faith. Saul to Paul, the persecutor of Christians, to chief instrument for Christ. Cornelius, a Roman militant, to a follower of Jesus. The Philippian jailer, the list could go on. It demonstrates through the power of the gospel, hearts of stone turning to hearts of Jesus. But at the same time, it presents this real unaltered story of Felix's rejection of the gospel as a strong reminder 
that those spectacular stories are not inevitable or even the norm when the gospel is proclaimed. Lastly, before we finish, what a great showing of God's sovereignty we have here. Although Paul is in prison, locked up, and the gospel spread seems to have been halted, it is during this time he's able to write his epistles to multiple churches across the map that have not only benefited believers then, but have been of extreme benefit to souls throughout the ages, including us, as they're found in our Bibles today. What a reminder that no human power can stop the spread of God's word. No human power can stop the spread of God's word. Not the Sanhedrin, not Tertullus, not even Governor Felix. Not our governments today, not the kings of the world today. God is the great missionary of Acts and he uses faithful servants like Paul to spread his gospel. And faithful servants like me and you to do so also. To finish, Paul's courage, persistence and clear focus on the resurrection in his testimony is a model for believers in every age. We can learn so much from his examples. We as testifiers of the gospel cannot expect a universally warm reception. There will be people who oppose us, some extremely harshly like we see in our chapter today. But we must, we must stand firm on God's promises and not waver on the truth of the death and the resurrection of Christ. It may sometimes feel like Groundhog Day for us, Weeks go by of us sharing the gospel with that one friend or that one family member and nothing seems to happen. No progress seems to be going on. And each day passes and the opposition to the gospel message seems to be growing against us more and more. The world around us want us more to keep our mouths shut and just to get on with our little Christian lives privately. It can be exhausting. It can often be discouraging. But we see Paul in this passage cheerfully making his stance on the gospel amongst the strongest opposition he could possibly face. And God still uses his message and his situation for the furthering of the gospel message. Be encouraged, friends. Even in our struggle and in those witness situations that may seem a waste of time, God can and will use you for the good of his kingdom. And we see that most clearly through Paul in this chapter and throughout the whole of the book of Acts. Solidarity with the gospel message will not lead to worldly prosperity as you will already know in your own lives today. Paul faced years in prison. He experienced so much physical harm throughout his Christian life. We need to be ready for suffering and persecution. Yet, just like Paul, we can have great hope as through the resurrection of Jesus, we are promised a home much greater than this if we are faithful and we persevere to the end. And to those here who are not Christians today, I urge you not to be like Felix. Don't trade the sturdy promise of eternal life for the fleeting pleasures and sins of this life. Look to Jesus, who Paul was willing to risk everything for, even his own life, 
who promises a resurrection where those in him are guaranteed an everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks for your servant, Paul. We thank you for this chapter in Acts, Lord, and what we can learn from it. Father, what a reminder that no human power can stop the spread of your word. It can look so discouraging as we look over our world today, Lord, and we see so much bad news, Lord, and discouraging news of Christians being locked up and and tortured and, and killed, Lord, just for the mere mention of your name or the mere owning of a Bible, Lord. And it, it looks like we're, we're losing, Lord. It looks often so discouraging. But what a reminder that nothing can stop your spread of the gospel. As you are sovereign, Lord, you are in control. Father, help us in our own witness to our friends, to our family. We know it, it's so hard, Lord. It's it's so challenging when we get no response or even a, a harsh response in return. We can feel personally attacked, Lord. We can feel downtrodden and, and discouraged and, and, and really sad. But Father, help us make our stance cheerfully as we can have hope in a resurrection, Lord. Through Christ Jesus' own resurrection and death, we can have hope of a final resurrection, Lord. So, Father, help us stay faithful to that day. Help us serve you, Lord. Help us love others. Help us be diligent disciples of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we partake in the Lord's Supper together, um, let's come before the Lord in worship. Um, I'll invite the band back up and we'll sing our final song before communion, All Creatures of Our God and King. <laughs>